Would you turn with me this morning to the book of Philippians? We've been working our way through this book. The last two Sundays we kind of took a break because we had um, Palm Sunday, and then last week we had Easter. But today we want to return to Paul's letter to the Philippian believers. A quick reminder of the key word, not the only word, but the key word that we've been wrapping our thoughts around as far as the theme of this book is joy. There are others who think that perhaps unity shines forth more. I think both of them are certainly appropriate. I've been building my comments around the word joy. Please remember that Paul gave a report of his own situation in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. He wanted them to know back there what he was going through in prison. Having done that, he then, in verse 27 of chapter 1, shifts his focus and addresses the Philippian believers. He emphasizes for them something that's very, very important. And if you have your Bible open, look at verse 27. Do you remember? The first word of verse 27 is only. The word only means, in our context, if you want joy, you must give priority, first and paramount importance to three specific things. Number one, standing firm. Number two, striving together courageously. And thirdly, humbly suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as he opens chapter two, he begins to deal with a very, very important subject in the body of Christ. It is something that must be maintained in order for joy to truly be experienced. And what is that? It is unity. Unity. Please remember that Christian unity is not uniformity. Everybody doesn't have to wear the same uniform. Christian unity is not unanimity. Not everybody has to pull the same lever on the ballot box as it were. Christian unity, and I borrow this from John Piper, and I thought it was very good, has at least four things that surround our understanding. Number one, Christian unity has to have the right source. And where is that source? It's the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 4, maintain unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Not only the right source, but it must have the right view. What is that unity surrounded by and undergirded by? It is undergirded by the truth. The truth as it is in the gospel. Thirdly, there have to have right affections associated with that unity. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he's talking about brotherly love. Love like brothers. And finally, the goal. What is the goal of unity? So that we can be happy and have a life of peace? Well, we certainly want that. But the ultimate goal is the glory of God. Further, we spent just a couple of moments just trying to emphasize the importance of unity in the body of Christ. Perhaps in regard to the gospel, the most important thing is Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. If we Christians keep speaking and saying the gospel will change your life, God will make you a brand new person and keep espousing the gospel, but we don't dwell together in unity, Jesus says, Father, may they be one so the world will believe that you sent me. 
It's one thing to speak it. It's another thing to act like Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left heaven, came to this earth, and accomplished salvation. Then beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1, you have the word if four times. I believe that word should be changed to since. And so he gives to us in verse 1 motivations for unity. What are those motivations that God has given to us? Those reasons that we can have unity. There were four of them. We have encouragement from Christ, the Son of God. We have the love and comfort of the Father. We have the fellowship or partnership of the Holy Spirit. That's Father, Son, and Spirit. And then we have the affection of the entire Godhead who loves us, whose love we can never be separated from. Today, we want to pick back up in verse 2. Having seen those motivations for unity, he then begins in verse 2 and says this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I believe in this verse we see Paul's personal interest in unity and his personal appeal for unity as to how it affects him. In essence, I think he's saying because of the incredible blessings that these Philippian believers enjoy as Christians, as sons and daughters of God, they can actually respond to those blessings by realizing the impact not only upon their own lives, but upon Paul's joy. One of the things that I struggle with in my life, perhaps you do as well, is I'm grateful for God's blessings. I truly am. But do I respond to those blessings in a way that shows that I am grateful for them? You see, their unity matters for more than just themselves. In this individualistic, self-centered culture in which we live, where it's all about me and how it's going to benefit me, Paul directs their thoughts to understand. This will be a blessing to you, but it also deeply affects me as your brother in Christ. Let me pause here and just say this. No matter how much joy a Christian can experience at any given time, that joy can be enlarged. More than that, we personally can be involved in that process in the lives of other believers. Think about that for just a moment. It is actually possible for me to be an instrument in God's hand to expand, to enlarge, and to help on maturity in other Christians' lives and their joy. That's an awesome responsibility, folks. It's also a blessed privilege. Do you remember the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10? One of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why people who call themselves Christians should regularly be with God's people when they come together is not just for their own sake. That's the mindset of the Western world. But primarily is for the glory of God and penultimately, secondarily, for the blessing and encouragement of other believers. He says in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but rather when you come together, stir one another to love and good works. I don't know how you came here this morning. I don't know why you came here this morning. I'm glad you are. And I believe you're here because God brought you here. He has a word for you and for me. 
And one of those purposes is that somehow during this time that you are here, if you have the opportunity, the door is open, you should be able to address another believer and say, how you doing? How can I pray for you? How was your week? How can I encourage you? How can I be a part of your life to stir you on to love, love for God, love for his people, love for the world, and good works? You remember those good works Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 2? We know verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But it doesn't stop there. There's not a period there. Because the next verse talks about, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good work. You, in my life, can stir me on to love and good works, and I can do the same for you. It's not a bunch of people running around like little chessboard pieces, having their own little thing done. We're together to stir, to encourage. And I have the privilege, and you have the privilege, with other believers to be a part of their, this is probably not a word, it may not get into the dictionary, but it's your joyometer. You know what that is? Like a thermometer. Your joy factor, your tube of joy. We can have the privilege of raising that up and helping it to stay up. Does your joy ever wane? Does your joy ever go down? If you've got that down, please tell us how you did it. Write a book and you'll be a millionaire. I think the Apostle Paul struggled with that. Read his letters. And so they can help refill his joyometer on a regular basis. And is that important? Well, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. It helps me to remain strong in my walk with the Lord. So as we look at this verse, I just want to talk about a couple of things. First of all, the meaning of what Paul says in, at the beginning, complete my joy. What does he mean by that? And then secondly, in that verse, he tells us how we can do that. Complete my joy And let me tell you how that can happen. The words, complete my joy, by the way, are not a suggestion. They're not an option. In the Greek language, they're imperative. Verses 1 through 4 actually are just one sentence in the Greek language. And the only command, the only imperative in those four verses is complete my joy. So it's something that they should take seriously, and as God's people, we should as well. Well, what does that mean? Well, Hendrickson says it means make full the measure of my joy. Fill my joyometer back up on a regular basis. Now, before Paul gives them this fourfold directive as to how to do it, he has made it clear already in this book that he does have joy from them. He's not asking them to be the originator of his joy. If if I'm expecting you to be the source of my joy... I'm going to be sadly disappointed. And if you expect me to be the source, listen, the source of your joy, we're both going to be disappointed. God is the source of joy. That distinctly belongs to him. But again, as Paul has already said back in chapter 1 and verse 5, actually verses 4 and 5, he talked about his joy that comes from prayer. And because of their partnership, because of their fellowship in the gospel, they're constantly bringing him joy. He's talked about that. But he wants more. He wants more. You know what? That's a sure sign of a child of God. There's always this tension. I'm satisfied. 
I'm satisfied with Jesus Christ, what He's done for me, what He's doing for me now in heaven. I'm satisfied, but at the same time, I'm not satisfied. There's more that God has for me. Now be careful with that. Be very careful with that. But there's still that tension in my heart. And Paul wants more. He doesn't want his joyometer, if you please, to go down and stay there. So what's he talking about when he says this? In my reading, there was one man who brought up this question, and I thought it was a good question. I wish I'd have thought of it. I didn't see it from his perspective. But he asked this question. When you see that phrase complete, my, with the emphasis on my, joy, it might sound strangely self-centered as a lead-in to Paul's directive that his friends should not think about their joy first, they should think more about him. That's a, that's a good uh, logical thought. In other words, he's saying, hey, you guys, yeah, your joy is important, but you complete my joy. In other words, I'm more important than you are. It seems like that, but I don't think that's what he's saying. And if we're not careful, we misunderstand his emphasis. Let me paraphrase it. I'm not sure who I got this from, but I like the paraphrase. Because my heart embraces yours, listen, my fullness of joy depends on your growing in unity one with another. If we only understood the consequences, both in the church and even in the community, when a church becomes a group of wrangling, self-centered people, that filters out in the community. And believe me, that word will get around. And the reputation of that church will be known in the community. Paul is saying, your unity is directly connected to my joy. My joy depends, not totally, but my joy depends upon you guys. It causes me great pain to hear that there are tensions among you. And to realize that those tensions are the result of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Even, I'm still reading, even if the way you are wounding each other doesn't bother you. And I put in parentheses, huh? How, how could that happen? Wounding and hurting one another? You know the phrase, don't you? Only Christians shoot their wounded. You know what a Christian firing squad is? Most of the time, it's a circle. Picture that, will you? Circle of people with their, their guns aimed at each other. Even if it doesn't bother you, it should, but even if it doesn't bother you, if you care about me, swallow your pride. Proverbs 13.10 says, only, King James Version, sorry I can't get that out of my head, only by pride comes content. When you find Christians fussing and fighting and in disunity, you go to the center of that puppy and you'll find pride. Guaranteed, every time. What's the middle letter of pride? What's the middle letter of sin? Same one. So he says, swallow your pride, as it were, or overcome it by the Spirit of God. Break out of your prison cell of self-centeredness and humbly treat one another as more important than yourself. Talk about an anti-Western Christianity mantra. You ain't a bag of chips and all that. You think the world revolves around you. Eh, wrong answer. 
And if you'll act in such a way as to combat that, I'll be as happy as a, a lark. A friend of mine used to say, like a fat rat in a barrel of cheese. Huh? Now, listen to me. This is important. This is relevant. This is as, it's more relevant than this morning's newspaper, even if you've already read it. We must be convinced of the importance of remembering that we are a body. We are a family. And in a culture where the breakdown of the family is smothered and ruined, it's hard to conceive of that sometimes in the body of Christ. Dysfunction is ruling in our culture. We need to capture that idea of community and family. And because we are, we have responsibilities with brothers. This is not a responsibility. I know it's a command, but it's a privilege that I could actually be a part of your joy and you could be a part of mine. That's astounding. Now let me make a personal, practical application to you dear folks at Living Legacy. When the Lord brings your new pastor, here's a verse of scripture that I want you to keep either on your screen, your phone, your mirror, your car somewhere else. Turn with me to Hebrews 13, 17. I want to show you something. This also, by the way, is for the uh, leadership team that's in place right now. That's Brother John Williams and Scott Landis and myself with the governing leadership. But when the new pastor comes, I want you to remember this verse. This is important. If we, if as a group of godly people, as a congregation, you have this nailed down when he comes in the door, You'll be off on a good start, and I think God will richly bless you as you progress together. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 17. And there's a key word in that verse. Obey. Uh-huh. We Americans, we don't obey anybody. You can suggest it, but I'll think about it. Well, that ain't biblical. And <laughs> I know when I do wedding ceremonies, I've even had... Potential brides say, you take that out of the ceremony. Because part of the scriptures is for a wife to obey. Now, is that slavish fear? Is that being a doormat? No. That's a sweet word that means work with them. Surrender and humbly walk under their authority. So obey who? Your leaders and submit to them. For they are watching, keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They have an awesome, incredible responsibility. They are going to give an account to God someday how they have shepherded your soul. Now, please keep going. Let them do this with what? What's that three-letter word? I'll say this tongue-in-cheek. I've often heard it said. Pastors will say, you know what? If it wasn't for people, I'd love my job. Let their service be a joyful thing. You know what makes it not joyful? As a parent, now a grandparent, I can remember those days when my kids were wrangling and hurting each other and gossiping and talking about each other and fighting. And I got to tell you, that hurt me. It really hurt me to see my children not getting along. Now, your pastor's not your father, I know that, but he's a spiritual leader, the, the governing leadership of the spiritual leaders. Let their service in leading you be one of joy, delight, 
thrill. And there'll be a mutual encouragement as you walk with the Lord together. Well, that's the meaning of that word, I think. Now, what does he say as far as the method? How is this to be carried out? Now, in the ESV, it looks like there's three directives. I went back to the NASB because I think that's a little bit better understanding. There's four things here, not just three. In the ESV, it looks like the last one's together, but I think there's actually four ways, and they're on your outline there. Four descriptions of how they can increase Paul's joy. These are things that they can do, and as they're doing them, they're going to make Paul's joyometer, as it were, stay up where it ought to be. What are they? Number one, being of the same mind. The idea is to have a certain mindset, a certain attitude. The same, the one, the same viewpoint. Now, does that mean everybody's got to think the same thing? I think the, the emphasis is upon the essentials of the gospel. There are some things that we call non-negotiables. This is, doesn't just contain, this is the word of God. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Those are non-negotiables. Those are essential. Now, if you are wrangling about eschatology, a premillennial, a postmillennial, an amillennial, or whatever millennial, I have a friend of mine who says, I'm pro-millennial. I'm for it if there is one. Another guy said, I'm a pan-millennial. It's going to pan out all right, okay? You can have great discussions and disagreements over well, is there going to be a dispensation of this and Jesus comes here and the beast and Russia and the false prophet? That's okay. There's two things you've got to settle on, though, and everybody's got to agree on this. Jesus is coming again. That's a non-negotiable. And secondly, you better be ready. That's a non-negotiable. You understand what I'm saying? So when he talks here about being of the same mind, he's talking about the essentials of the gospel. We must agree on those things. We have to have the same thinking about those. There are those even in our day who say, oh, when they hear the word doctrine, oh, doctrine divides. We don't have much doctrine here. Really? If you don't have doctrine from your pulpit, what do you got? Well, you got little stories and opinions, and you get little sermonettes that produce little Christianettes that are about as fluffy as the Easter bunny. No. Doctrine does not divide. But rather, it unites and I'm quoting here Mr. Johnson. True doctrine, far from dividing believers into rival theological camps, actually, listen, actually promotes and preserves true unity. Unity of conviction among the people of God and these Philippian believers is profitable for them and will bring great joy to Paul. Secondly, he says, maintaining the same love. Now, we know, of course, there will be relationally people closer to others than some. They might be more connected because of common traits or life experiences. It could be the result of similar interests. What he's talking about here is that we show the same love to every child of God. You remember James chapter 2? James says, you know, you got some rich guys in town. They've been wranging you to court and taking you and... and, and uh, uh, Banker Joe comes into your church and he walks in the door and he's got one of those heart shafter and mark suits on. He's got those Italian shoes that cost about $500. He looks as slick. And he walks in and the deacons go, ooh, 
Banker Joe's here. Come, Banker Joe. We've got a seat right up front here for you. Oh, we're glad you're here this morning. And then old farmer Fred walks in. He's still got manure on his boots. And he usually sits there. Sorry, farmer, you ain't got that today. Banker Joe's got that. You let him sit in the back because he's just not as important. And James says, that's wrong. That's wrong. You should treat and show love to every Christian the same way. This flies in the face of cliques, doesn't it? I'm looking at some young people. Because I've taught in school, still do. That's one of the famous things, especially in Christian schools as well. They're not exempt from that. We got our kind, and they got their kind, right? Paul dealt with that issue in the church at Corinth. Remember, they were coming together for the Lord's Supper? And the rich banker Joes were over in this corner eating steak and baked potato and broccoli, and Farmer Fred's over here with his pot of beans, and they were just separating. Paul said, that's terrible. The body of Christ is one. You should show the same love to each other, no matter who they are. If they love Jesus Christ, they're your brother or your sister. What's the contemporary song I've been listening to? We all bleed the same. So why are we divided? Maintain. Show the same love to every person. Yeah, but he's so obnoxious. She talks funny. Well, go look in the mirror. You see what I'm saying? Show the same love to each other. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here it is. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The unity that Paul desires for the Philippians is more than theological. It's more than having our theological ducks in a row, as it were. We not only must think according to the essentials of the gospel, but we must care for as well as about one another. That's the ministry of love and hospitality as we meet one another's needs. And James and John both talk about this. If you say you love God, and your brother comes up and he's got a need and you could meet that need, and you just pat him on the shoulder and say, well, brother, I know. Isn't God wonderful? Oh, he sure is. I'll tell you what, I'll pray for you. When in home you have what is needed to meet his need, how can you say the love of God's in you? That's so practical. That's so practical. Thirdly, united in spirit. The idea here is being in full accord or being one-souled. S-O-U-L-E-D. Interesting, the Greek word here is the word we get our English word, symphony. Interesting, isn't it? I used to play trombone in high school and don't do it much anymore, but I remember I was in the, the symphony orchestra and it was very important that each one of those instruments all played their part and played their part well. They were united and as long as they were united, a beautiful sound came out. But if one of them was off, they decided, you know what, I ain't playing that stupid song today. I got my own song I'm going to start playing. So they start playing with everybody. Well, you know the dissonance that's going to come from that, don't you? It's a beautiful thing, Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Unity. In order for this to happen, there must be hearts that are knitted together with mutual love for Christ 
and living in harmony one with another. And finally, intent. I like that word. Intent on one purpose. This is intentional. This is not just going to happen. There has to be an intentional effort. And what is that one purpose? What is our life individually and as a body of Christ truly all about? The answer, the gospel. The gospel. Next time you read through your New Testament, come across Paul's letters, have a pen. I do that all the time. And every time you see the word gospel, put a little G out in the corner, out in the margin. It'll astound you how many times that word is used in the New Testament. The reason for our existence, having been born into the family of God, is as we come together this morning, in times like this, to rejoice in the gospel. And we're going to do that at the end of our service as we rejoice in what Christ did for us. We're going to celebrate communion together. This doesn't make me a Christian. This reminds me that by the grace in the gospel, I am a Christian. Don't you love to remember that? You folks have been married more than a couple years. Don't you like to go back and remember? Got a relationship with someone that's very special? You go back and remember that. That just fills your heart with praise, doesn't it? As we remember God's grace to us. Then secondly, we rejoice in it. But thirdly, we need to rehearse it. Not far from this building, as in most church buildings in the West, there are people, and this is what really blew my mind a few years ago, there's probably people not far from here who have never heard the name of Jesus except in a curse word. They have no idea who he is. Who's going to tell them? Another plug-in for your pastor. It ain't his job to tell everybody in Hershey about Jesus. His job, Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip you brothers and sisters so that you can do the work of ministry and where you are on your job every day, live as a Christian. If God opens the door, talk about Jesus. If you get the chance to tell them what it means to trust in Christ and turn from their sin and believe on Him, go for it. But then your work really starts. See? Because if they confess faith in Jesus Christ, now I'm responsible to disciple them, to train them, to help them to grow. So that they can do what? The same thing that I did. Share Christ, win people to Christ, help them to grow in Christ, and continue on. 2 Timothy 2.2 Timothy, the things that you have learned from me, that you've heard from me, the same commit to faithful men who can do what? Commit to other faithful men. Commit to other faithful men. Commit to other faithful men. The church is a university of disciple makers. But we ain't doing the job. We believe we have, well, most churches should be called the Field of Dreams Baptist Church. You know the motto of the Field of Dreams? If you build it, they will come. Beautiful building, all of the architecture, all of the music. Nothing wrong, you guys did a great job. Beautiful music, beautiful kids programs, beautiful youth programs. And if we build it, they will come. Guess what? Unless you're putting on a circus, or tickling their ears, or giving them something they love, they ain't going to come. They don't need us. The world's got too many good things. We can't compete with them. 
one thing they can't argue against is a holy life that's totally committed to Jesus Christ and a group of people who love each other intentionally and have a burden not just for the local area, but for the world. So we come together, we're equipped, God gives us something fresh, we go out and we give it out to other people and we do that on a weekly basis. And by the way, that to me is the best evangelistic program that a church could ever have. What's the purpose? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, the ultimate purpose is the glory of God. All right, so we have the meaning of complete my joy. We have the method of how that happens. What's that message for you and me? It's very simple. I think Paul's desire is a wonderful example and a pattern for us as God's people. If we would experience joy individually and as a church, then we have to pursue unity. How? Having the same mind on the essentials, showing the same love for all the body, being one souled as God's people, and staying focused on the central purpose of living and proclaiming the gospel. If we do, God will be glorified. Lost sinners will be converted. New children will come into the family, and we'll have the privilege of having them to mature. And finally, a spirit of joy, perhaps something like we've not known for a long time, will characterize our gatherings. People will get up on Sunday morning and go, what time does church start? Oh, I think I have a headache today. I don't think I'll go. I'll think I'll stay home and watch TV. There's always TV preachers I can watch. and They can give me something. Yeah. We ain't going down that road. As opposed to, it's Lord's Day. We get to go to church this morning and be with God's people. Be around those people that love the Lord and, and, and fill up my joyometer so I can be a Christian this week. Come on, let's hurry up and eat breakfast and get to church. See, See the difference? Well, my question is, is all that Paul says, is that possible? Can that really happen? 